Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Wednesday, September 3rd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now introduce you to a news topic that takes you on a thrilling roller coaster ride with every word I utter. The geckos. The space geckos. The Russian space geckos. The Russian space geckos involved in a study of sexual habits are dead. Okay, kind of fell off a little bit at the end. But yeah, these Russian space geckos who were invited to have sex in outer space, basically demanded that they have sex in outer space, they froze to death. That's the top theory. Or perhaps they questioned Putin's foreign policy. That's also a competing theory. But they are dead. There were five of them, possibly frozen. Although, of course, if you want to smear anyone in Russia, what you do is you say that they died from freezing. I mean, you go off the list of brave cosmonauts and onto the list of the shamefully weak in the eyes of any Russian if you freeze. So that would play into maybe Putin wanted to smear them and have them killed. Anyway, I've got really not a lot to go on there. What I do know is that the landing apparatus of the Photon-M satellite returned to Earth as planned today. It uh, fell into a region of Russia, but the entire crew of geckos was dead. I, for one, suspect foul play. So you had five geckos, right? So there was one odd gecko out in this Barbarella-esque celestial sex romp. Did that gecko plot revenge? Did he set it all up to look like an accident? And what about the valuable data that could have been gleaned from knowing about weightlessness and copulation among geckos? I mean, I weep for that vital, vital information that we may have learned if only we had let these randy little scaled reptiles make the beast with two backs two tails, eight legs, or, and here's another theory I would bring in for questioning the guy who was supposed to be in charge of the geckos once they landed. Because let me read to you what happens to a gecko after mating. This is from a respected herpetological news service, or depending on your orientation, the nastiest repository of filthy gecko porn known to man. Here we go. Don't be afraid if you see something red or pink hanging from the male's vent after copulation. This is the hemipene, and he will often lick himself until it fits back into the vent. If you see that your gecko is having trouble getting his hemipene back into the vent a couple hours after copulation, keep an eye on it and try to keep it from drying out. Some have recommended using sugar water or honey. 
you may need to call your exotics veterinarian if your gecko has issues re-inverting his parts. So Sir Guy, the guy whose job it was to reinsert the gecko's parts in his vent, I might want to ask him to account for his whereabouts during this period. By the way, just listeners who heard that last bit are now 70% less likely to buy a certain brand of insurance. Sorry, beloved spokes lizard. On the show today, I will spiel about rhetoric in the fight against ISIS, but first, what we see, how we imagine, and what we think we know when we read. If I say to you, walk into a house, take a right, and what do you see? Well, you probably didn't concoct a house from your imagination. You probably thought of a house, and I bet the house you thought of was the one that you grew up in. Well, a similar thing works for not just an example that I throw out at you, but an example that an author might, you know, to the lighthouse. Let's think about that lighthouse. What does the lighthouse look like? Or what do famous literary characters look like? Well, there's the author's description, but somehow your imagining of them, your seeing of them, is influenced by things other than the exact words on the page. It's something that we might not even think about, it, but of course, on some level, we're thinking about it every time we read. And this is the subject, or among the subjects, of Peter Mendelssohn's new book, what we see when we read, which is a really interesting book about books. And Peter Mendelssohn is an actually interesting guy who's here right now. Hello, Peter. Hi. So before we even start with this, what is what is your background? How did you come to how did you come to write this book and think so much about this subject? My background is odd. Uh, <laughs> I will admit it. <laughs> I spent most of my life playing the piano. I was trained as a classical pianist and I started when I was four and did that until I was about 32 or so. And then um, family, kids, all that kind of stuff, needed more money, needed a new job. So after some soul searching and brainstorming, design presented itself as a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of visual people in my family. I myself have always liked to draw and paint, et cetera, et cetera. So in the sort of ensuing eight months after that brainstorming, I taught myself how to design, use the software, et cetera, made myself a kind of preliminary portfolio. And through a series of tenuous connections, got an interview with a book designer named Chip Kidd, who is sort of the book designer. And a, uh, and a great Batman aficionado. That's right. I read his Batman book. He is Mr. Yeah, Batman. He is the, he's also the book designer. Right. Yeah, he's yeah. really just the grand poobah of book design. I didn't know any of that. I just knew that I had this, you know, lousy little portfolio, and I'm just going to check this out and talk to this guy and see what happens. And a week after that, I was working where I work now, 12 years later, designing book covers and book jackets. And that I mean, is for Alfred A. Knopf. That is true. Should I say a Knopf? Yeah, you I've totally heard, nailed it. I've heard, I've heard it's supposed <laughs> to say Knopf. This book is called What We See When We Read, How We Envision. When we say envision, mm -hmm. do we really mean vision? R right. Yeah. You know, really, the book is an attempt in a humble way to just investigate and unpack a little bit the various ways that we can use the word see. So, yeah, yeah you mentioned envision, imagine. You know, ultimately, that investigation 
brought me to the realization that there is no form of seeing that isn't mediated in some way. Even optical seeing, even me looking at you in this podcast booth right now is mediated in some way. And it's mediated by my memories and my proclivities. And But, you know, the idea of the book was to investigate this idea of the imagination and sort of the metaphors that we use to describe the reading imagination, which are which are actually very filmic uh, metaphors, this idea that we're, we're seeing in an optical way the author's world rather than creating this crazy miasmic kind of thing out of our own experience using the prompts of the author to a greater or lesser extent. Well, they're filmic, but you make the point at times they're also video gamic and yeah. comic bookish. Right. And the reason they relate back to books that work are because they're all hitting something in our brain that's similar. Although, you know, the interesting thing about reading, I think, is that we, uh, as opposed to, say, video games, we imagine reading as being a medium in which we have no agency, we're passive recipients of the author's work, and video games as being the opposite, where we're active participants. And the more you sort of examine, say, just even those two media, you find out it's it's actually quite the opposite in some ways, that reading is way more active and we have way more agency than we think we do. And in video games, like I said, it's sort of the opposite. We're, we're way more uh, put in the runnels that the programmer has made for us. Right. So. It's funny. We've read, we've all read so many books and maybe we haven't even stopped to think about a few basic things here. You're asking us to consider how we read and how we take in information, what we see when we read. But just think of it this way. You know, what other art forms go at the exact pace as dictated by the audience? I can't really think of one. Obviously, anything performed when you were a pianist, people couldn't hear it differently than how you played it. That's right. Unless they listened to it a time and a half. So, like, it all happens exactly at the pace of the audience. And that's unique, and I think that's profound, and that has something to do with what you're writing. Yeah, it is unique, and it is profound. And and what's interesting to me about it is that we don't look back on the reading experience the way in which you just described it, yeah. which is true. We do have that extremely tight control over the pacing of a book as we read it, but we imagine that it is the author's pacing that the author takes us through at a breakneck pace, or it's a more sort of meditative kind of book. And, and there is some control that an author exercises in terms of the amount of detail, the complexity of the language. Reading is different from those other media in another way as well, which is that there is direct sensory input Mm -hmm. In the sense that when you're hearing music, you're hearing the sounds. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at a piece of art, your optic nerve is picking up the colors. But when you're reading, there is another step, which is that you're looking at something. And then there is this, I don't want to use the word mystical, but there is this incredible metaphysical transmutation into something that you describe as being sensory material, which right. may not be. And as you point out in the book, you know... Proust and the Madelines, you can't really remember a smell. In fact, of the senses, you can close your eyes, you can see daffodils, but you can't remember a smell. Yeah. And there are some senses that it... Can you really feel... You could remember how something feels, but you're not feeling it. This is a really interesting question. First of all, I'm very lucky enough to know a neuroscientist who specializes in smell. He yeah. appears in the book at one point. And I remember he came over to my house one evening for a dinner party, and we all had this sort of furious argument about what it means to remember a smell. And he was basically trying to tell us that 
you can't, in a truly visceral way, recall a sense. You can that remember you, that it smelled. You can remember right. the feelings that you That's had. Right. I remember walking into, I was covering post-Katrina, walking into the fetid bathrooms of the Superdome after it had been abandoned. I smell and, it as we speak. Right, right? <laughs> and you think so. But I, I almost wretched at that moment. I can't bring myself to almost wretch now because I'm not really remembering the right. smell. Although there's this other interesting thing, which is that, and it creates a bit of a regression, but... Is imagining that you're imagining qualitatively the same thing as imagining? And again, I'm I'm a book cover designer. I'm not a neuroscientist or a philosopher of mind, so I'm not really equipped to talk about mental content in this way. But it may just be that thinking that you do something is in fact as good as doing it. Um, yes. My friend, the neuro uh, scientist, would disagree. He says that there's actually real qualitative differences between those two things. And there's an evolutionary reason for that, that false alarms are actually a big deal in the animal kingdom. And so you you really want to be able to distinguish between something that is, you know, a counterfactual and right. something that's actually occurring. Right. Because even if you're reading The Snows of Kilimanjaro or some other book with uh, danger, you're not going to die. Right. Right. And so this is why <laughs> right. the false alarms are important in yeah, nature, that's right. less than a book. Um so an example, a tangible example from your book. What does Anna Karenina look like? Well, for me or... <laughs> well, this is an example. Right. Someone listening to this, if they've read Anna Karenina, they're yes. thinking of what someone looks like. Okay. So everybody who's listening to this, picture Anna Karenina in your mind's eye for a second. And then I'll tell you what Tolstoy says about her. Uh, she's plump. Uh, she has a mustache. She has tightly curled black hair. And she has little hands. That's what you got. So... Just in terms of physical description, you know, is that dissonant or consonant with what you came up with? My my best guess is that you didn't come up with something particularly clear in the first place. The Anna Karenina that you're thinking about is more an accumulation of traits that are not visual, but rather have more to do with her interactions with the other characters in the book that are probably more psychological and emotional. You know, one of the great things that fiction does that no other medium does as well is describe the inside out like it's very good at introspection in a way that film is not so your picture as it were of anna karenina is probably anna karenina from the inside out pov yeah tolstoy tells us close to nothing about what she looks like and maybe that's on purpose i don't know i mean the less you say about something the more you can encourage the imagination right. you know i i gather at, at the first draft of anna karenina she was a much more fully described character, and she was kind of loudish, like she was uh, she was ugly, and she was, you know, he really went into detail with her and then just decided, first of all, this isn't someone you're going to sympathize with, but second of all, you know, I would think maybe he thought maybe I'm giving away too much here. Or if uh, what happens in modern times is your Anna Karenina is an exact cross between Greta Garbo, Kira Knightley, Sophie Marceau, right. everyone is exactly. <laughs> and what kind of horrible Frankenstein monster would that oh, be? Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, oh, I beg to differ. <laughs> the loveliest of all monsters. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So have you, I mean, since you live in this, uh, with these ideas, what movie destroyed a character for you the most? Um, the look of a character. So the Tolkien books are just over. Like, they're over for me. Yeah. I'm never going to read them again. And, uh, you know, I started reading The Fellowship of the Rings to my daughter out loud, and it's even ruined for her. Those books are really predicated on, you know, you deploying your imagination to the best of your ability. And now it's, you know, oh, look, there's 
what's his name? Sir, Sir Ian. <laughs> Sir Ian, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, those books are, are done. I would say probably the same for Harry Potter as well. And then in terms of the, yeah, Great Gatsby, Leo DiCaprio, that's a super bummer. Richard Basehart for Ishmael. Um, you know, there's any number of them. And I just, you know, you try to avoid it, but it's very hard to not see these things when they're in the culture. And of course, you know, I work in a business where... You know, if there is a uh, filmic adaptation of a classic, my company will put out a movie tie-in cover for it in paperback. And so, you know, there's piles of these things sitting outside my office of, you know, Persuasion or Emma or whatever. And that sucks. <laughs> and it also begs the question, like, who are the people that really, really love these things? Because they, they sell a lot. You know, I've said this to people before and they always find it surprising. But the movie tie-ins do great. And explain that to me. Do you Are there some writers who either intuited or through your research really broke it down in a way similar to uh, how you're breaking it down, how the reader perceives either their description of character or their description of time or just how the reader perceives. You know, the only area of expertise that I really bring to this is that as a book cover designer, I do this day in, day out for 12 years. So, right. And so you will have to think sometimes if you wanted to put the character on the cover, right. what will this character look like? And you've had conversations with authors. And do, have you ever had a conversation with an author who said, no, that's wrong? Or maybe you've even had conversations that says, I'm not sure. Yeah. Have you ever had, I'm not I've sure? Had, I've had both of those responses. And what's interesting is I've had authors who say to me, no, that's wrong, and then I've spoken to them about my own responses to the book, and they've sort of seeded ground and said, well, one of the great things and one of the difficult things about the moment at which I enter an author's life is it is the exact moment in which the book goes from being theirs to ours, mm -hmm. you know, ours being the reading public. You know, this is the first moment that they have not been alone in their own cranium with this thing that they're working on and it's a very tender moment and it's can be uh, a very challenging yeah. moment for and it's authors. it's the first representation of their book in yeah. a way that's not at, that's out of their control. What's interesting is that a lot of the time it'll be a very exciting moment for the author and for me it'll be a really disappointing moment because there's something about making something that's amorphous and metaphysical concrete that I always find really disappointing that all of a sudden, say, Anna Karenina in all of her sort of multifarious splendor becomes like this very specific thing. And there's this kind of thusness about it. And I always find it like a real bummer. On the other hand, the author, like I said, has sort of been living in this realm. And then all of a sudden they see the thing made real. And it, I don't know, it's, it's an exciting, it's much more happy moment often for them than it is for me. You know, I, as a radio guy, sometimes you hear the, oh, your voice doesn't match right. what I thought it would be. <laughs> and sometimes I hear it does. But uh, I, I guess authors go through this too whenever their their book is put and made onto the screen. I always say, well, what do you think I would look like? And they, they don't have a great idea. Like, eh, they don't say, oh, maybe taller because I'm kind of tall. But I guess people who aren't that tall, they get that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the point for me is that every experience you happen in life, you're receiving, you know, fragmented information. And from that fragmented information, you're putting together as best you can some sort of model and... You know, with the case of radio, all they've got to go on is your voice. That's the only prompt. And from that, you know, I just think that the mind is built to manufacture a model of a person from a voice. Mm -hmm. So and it may be, a, like you said, a very indistinct model. 
also there's a certain amount of projection that I would imagine takes place in radio where people hear your voice and then they sort of make of you the right. best of their dreams sort or, of thing or the me, opposite. The idea like the fact that you're not drooling is really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> what we see when we read. Thank you so much, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. You know, Squarespace is simple and easy. As I said yesterday, these seem like the same thing. They're not. Let's think about some things that are one but not the other. The Gordian knot, right? It was, in a way, very complex and no one knew how to unravel it. But it was easy once you figured out that you, boom, cut right through the middle. How about democracy? I mean, democracy is pretty simple concept, right? Nah, nah, it's not at all easy to implement or at least implement correctly. And I was thinking about maybe an involuntary reflex, right? Breathing. Let's take breathing. It's so complex, you know? It has so many so many specific functions in the lungs and the cilia and all of this stuff, but you don't even think about it, right? It's involuntary, so it's an easy thing to do, but it's in no way simple. Yet Squarespace is both simple and easy. It has beautiful design. It has drag and drop content. They offer 24-7 support and live chat and email. Those chators and emailors are located in Dublin, NYC, Portland, Oregon. Plans start at $8 a month, and they'll give you a free domain name if you sign up for a year. When you decide to go to Squarespace, as I said, enter the offer code GIST, G-I-S-T, to get 10% off your first visit. Thank you, Squarespace, for sponsoring the GIST. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And now the spiel. For the last few weeks, the U.S. has been bombing ISIS using over 100 airstrikes effectively, it should be noted. At the same time, the vicious Sunni militants have been issuing their most forceful propaganda sallies against the West. Perhaps that's not a coincidence. But as the U.S. strikes against ISIS on the battlefields, by the way, beating them, a fair-minded tactician would note, the U.S. has been losing the war of words. President Obama's rhetoric when it comes to the group that calls itself the Islamic State or ISIL or ISIS has been assailed. Unfairly, I'll document that, but also predictably and to a large extent effectively. The president's words have been used against him, as when he said this last Friday in a news conference. I have consulted with Congress throughout this process. Uh, I am confident that as Commander-in-Chief I have the authorities to engage in the acts that we are conducting currently. Uh, As our strategy develops, we will continue to consult with Congress, and I do think that it will be important for Congress to weigh in, and uh, uh, or that our consultations with Congress uh, continue to develop so that uh, the American people are part of the debate. Uh, But I don't want to put the cart before the horse. We don't have a strategy yet. Clearly, what he's saying is that one day we may get to the point where we ask Congress for some sort of authority to strike within Syria, but we're not there yet. The press conference was full of details about what the White House's strategy is. The problem is that the strategy is not airstrikes within Syria, and it's not soldiers in Iraq, and it's not indiscriminate bombing of huge swaths of foreign land. Now, when I say that's what the problem is, I don't mean it's a shame that the U.S. isn't aggressively attacking ISIS in Syria. I mean, aggressive action is a discernible point on the timeline of decisions. An act may be debatable, but 
almost as importantly, it's definable. Taking any action is much easier to justify, explain, sell, spin, or flat out lie about than not taking action. Not taking action also, that never ends. Electing not to fight seems indistinguishable from not making a decision at all. So a positive, affirmative stance not to intervene can be portrayed as dithering or paralysis. Complicating this even more in the case of ISIS is the fact that the president actually hasn't made a decision whether to act or not to act. He's still deciding. Or if you're not a fan of the president, he's not deciding. It's easy to confuse the two or to purposefully conflate the two. So the no strategy phrase, that was a stray bit of rhetoric from the president last week. Late last year, when the New Yorker's David Remnick interviewed him, President Obama made an analogy to a junior varsity basketball team. Asked about this recently in a White House press conference, Press Secretary Josh Earnest attempted to put the full quote in context. The president said, quote, I think there is a distinction between the capacity and reach of a bin Laden Uh, and a network that is actively planning major terrorist plots against the homeland versus jihadists who are engaged in various local power struggles and disputes, often sectarian. This has been interpreted as the president dismissing ISIS. And not just by White House critics. Andrea Mitchell, hosting Meet the Press, put the question to Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. The president back in January told The New Yorker magazine, David Remnick, that ISIS is the JV team. That was clearly wrong. Well, I think it's wrong, too. I think it's a major varsity team. And if you want to use those kinds of uh, monikers. And so to clarify, in fact, the president never said ISIS was the JV team. We just heard the entire quote. He was talking about al-Qaeda remnants, which are, in fact, weak, partially because they were overrun by the stronger ISIS. But in a way, it doesn't matter. The president has failed to lay out an affirmative, aggressive, rallying articulation of his policy. Now, his critics will say he doesn't have a policy. I think he does. I just think it's still evolving and therefore can be portrayed as not being a policy. And he hasn't given whatever his policy is. He hasn't given it a title. He hasn't set it up like a framework, like when as a candidate he said, I'm not against all wars, I'm against stupid wars. That is rhetoric you can measure a policy against. What's the equivalent with the ISIS situation? And even if he is, yeah, getting stung a little bit unfairly by the JV metaphor, it's not like that was really fine phrasing that he wants to hang his hat on. Soon after the New Yorker article came out, I talked to its author and New Yorker editor-in-chief David Remnick about that very metaphor. I think when it comes to something like Al-Qaeda and your metaphorical range is Kobe Bryant, I was, I was pretty surprised by it. I thought it was a kind of loose moment for a guy whose rhetorical style in interviews is extremely disciplined. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you, Mike. It, it, it's so striking, especially for print, because he knows he's not performing for a microphone or a camera. His speech becomes so incredibly deliberate that he's quite literally writing as he speaks. He's, he's forming, and he's highly self-conscious. I bet you, I bet you, with all the money in my pocket, that if he had to have that metaphor back, he would take it back. Well, he can have it back. But it's easier to wish for do-overs on a thought poorly expressed than on a missile inadvisedly fired. 
this famously cautious president has not yet painted himself into a corner. There are those begging for him to take action. There's no doubt that some further military action will be taken. But in the meantime, he still has the opportunity to explain, even convince a war-weary public what his course of action is and why he's taking it in terms that are aggressive, assertive, clear, a rebuttal to his rivals, and rousing to his supporters who have been given little to get behind other than careful clarifications and bad basketball metaphors. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist and the brains behind an experiment to measure the effects of introducing a frenemy into a population of teenage bonobos. Andy Bowers, before becoming executive producer of Slate Podcasts, immersed visitors to the DMV into sensory deprivation chambers in an effort to quantify the effects of spacelessness on weights. You can listen in SoundCloud. You can go to iTunes. We are on Yo! So you get the app. You sign up for the word podcast. That's us. We're podcast. As soon as the gist is up, you'll get yoed to that effect. You could also go to slate.com slash gist email and sign up for our email there. And you can play the show right off your email. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. And our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I, Mike Pesca, am best known for my one-man production of the complete works of Henrik Ibsen staged on the Muir Space Station. Ben Brantley said the setting did tend to undercut the gravity of the proceedings. I stand by that. Thanks for listening.